0: Welcome to the Bowel Sounds podcast, a new podcast brought to you by NASPEGAN. I'm Peter Liu.
1: And I'm Jen Lee.
0: We are pediatric gastroenterologists at Nationwide Children's Hospital. So we could not be more excited to introduce our first guest, a man who needs no introduction. He was the former president of NASPAGAN. He has published about 5 billion articles, potentially the godfather of pediatric GI motility. It is the one and only Carlo DiLorenzo.
1: He's also our boss
0: also our boss, so gotta be careful.
1: <laughs> so today we're going to talk about constipation.
0: Something that we see all the time that affects tons of children, like 12% of all kids, in any given time.
1: There's a lot of variability in how we practice.
0: And even still, we don't really have effective ways of treating it for every patient. We try to provoke him with talking about some of the more controversial topics in pediatric constipation.
1: Yeah, we hope this interview moved you.
0: It's a hard topic. <laughs> we'll just move on to the airframe
1: Ooh, let's just move on
0: Okay So, thank you so much for taking the time to be part of this first episode of our Bowel Sounds podcast So we want to welcome Dr. Carlo Lorenzo. Today we're going to talk about constipation in children So we have a bunch of questions for you on a lot of hot topics and normal topics too
2: Okay, looking forward to it
0: Great so, I have a genuine question that I, uh, is about you. Just going back 30 years, like why why did you initially choose the motility field?
2: Yeah, so like many things in life, it's a little bit of serendipity. Uh, in Italy, it's a different system in six years of medical school, you graduate doing a thesis and you kind of get assigned to different mentors. And, uh, my mentor was Salvatore Cucciara, who was, uh, at that time, a one of the most prominent motility experts in Europe. And so I ended up doing, with him and Dr. Sastayano. we did a study on the upper esophageal sphincter function in children with cerebral palsy. One of the first studies that looked at the function of that sphincter in that population. So that was my first exposure to motility. And then I moved, you know, I went to Belgium and I did some other research studies. I began to enjoy. I tell people success, breeds success, uh, somewhat... uh, in jest, I tell people, don't follow your passion, develop a passion. I didn't have a passion for motivity, but, you know, I began to do it. And sometimes you stumble into things. And once you do them, uh, you do them well and better than anybody else. And you get some positive feedback, some satisfaction. Some, uh, you know, I began to publish. And, and and so I decided to stick with it. And uh, yeah. <laughs> I realized that it's not the most exciting uh, field of pediatric GI. And uh, some people... Why just I would
0: just say that <laughs> it is the most exciting field in pediatric GI hey. by far. I, you know,
1: are saying that. You must, you
0: unbiased like opinion. Yeah, you, right? you must
2: have had a good mentor and uh, yeah, somebody yeah, trained yeah. you well. That's
1: right. <laughs> so rectal exams. Do we really have to do them?
2: So that's a little bit of a controversial topic. You will find uh, fairly extreme opinions about this. I really believe that. Every child with constipation, especially if he started early on in life, needs to have at least one rectal exam fairly early on in the evaluation. You know, you need to rule out anal stenosis, you know, malpositioned pre presacral masses. There are a variety of information you can get from a, a, a well-done rectal examination. That being said, there are some patients that are very We call them anally defensive. They are very scared about retal examinations that uh, are probably not good candidate, especially at the first time you evaluate them, and especially if the history is fairly typical for functional constipation to receive a retal examination. The other reason to do a retal exam is to determine how aggressive or even whether or not you need to do a fecal disimpaction before starting maintenance treatment for constipation. And a rectal exam will give you a good sense whether or not you're dealing with a, a completely filled rectum with very hard, difficult-to-evacuate stools or maybe softer stools that can respond better to an oral route of your clean-out. So I think somewhere at the beginning for the, your differential, then eventually to figure out if somebody needs a clean-out. Otherwise, I don't think patients with constipation need a retal exam every time they come to a clinic visit. That's my opinion. I mean, what's the role of getting abdominal x-rays? All right, that's another hot topic. Um, First of all, you can sometimes feel a fairly large fecal mass even with a, a good abdominal palpation. In that case, you probably don't need to do a lot more. But in overweight, patients and uh, we certainly see a lot of them with constipation and in patients uh, in whom you will take too much of an effort to do a retal examination because they are very uh, worried and scared then in those patients probably an abdominal x-ray can give you a good sense of how much fecal load there is and whether or not a oral clean out is even safe that being said i think for the vast majority of patients especially those that present with abdominal pain, especially those who go to the emergency room with a a less clear-cut history of constipation, I do not believe that an abdominal x-ray is uh, of great value. My personal experience is that uh, uh, abdominal x-rays are over-read in terms of amount of stool in the colon, um especially non-radiologists may look at an x-ray and find a colon filled with stools which is a perfectly normal uh, situation as all of us who do colonoscopies know you know the colon unless you do a good clean out is going to be full with stools from the anus usually all the way to the ascending colon to the cecum so the fact that you find stools throughout the entire colon by itself is not diagnostic of constipation. Sure. Um, and uh, I, you know, we see plenty of patients that receive a diagnosis of constipation just based on x-ray without any symptom of constipation.
1: So say I'm one of the doctors in the emergency department and I just diagnosed a patient with constipation based on x-ray, what, would you, what feedback would you give me?
2: That I would have preferred you to do a rectal exam. That's maybe one case in which uh, I think the rectal examination is going to give you more information than an abdominal x-ray. And that, uh, you know, unless the x-ray really shows a very large amount of stools, usually in the rectosigmoid area, I wouldn't worry at all about an ascending colon or transverse colon full of stools. So unless you find really a massive amount, and I, then I would not I would not attribute the patient's symptoms, which is usually abdominal pain, to the constipation. Because there have been studies that have shown that utilizing abdominal x-rays and diagnosing constipation in patients presenting to the emergency room with abdominal pain actually delays the diagnosis of the real reason why they had abdominal pain. It wasn't the constipation. This child was treated for constipation and he ended up then presenting with appendicitis or another surgical uh, reason for uh, the, the pain. So be very careful about using the x-rays. Do not over-interpret them. There is also plenty of evidence in the literature that says that, that shows that there is a tremendous amount of inter- individual variability, even among radiologists, about what constitutes a normal or increased amount of stools in the colon. So I would minimize the role of x-ray in the diagnosis of constipation. I think if you want to follow up somebody who got a good clean out, or if you have a patient presenting with fecal incontinence and you have no idea if somebody is really constipated, or not, and you cannot do a retal exam for different reasons, then maybe an abdominal x-ray may be helpful. But that's a very selective, selective circumstances. So
0: kind of moving on a little bit from evaluation and thinking Mm -hmm. about patients to how we treat them, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of controversy about polyethylene glycol 3350 or Miralax. When families are concerned about that or they are resistant to it, what do you usually say to them?
2: I, this is a, <laughs> thank you for this question. This is no another problem. another topic that uh, has received a lot of attention in the past few years. It's a somewhat of delicate topic because there are families that are strong believers that the child has developed a variety of neuropsychiatric events, anything from uh, behavioral problems to seizures due to compounds that were part of. Uh, mixed with a polyethylene glycol 3350 and uh, much like is done people do with a vaccine is very hard to have a fact-based scientific discussion when you are so emotionally involved that being said currently with a current state of knowledge there is no credible scientific evidence that the Either acute or chronic use of polyethylene glycol 3350, Miralax or other glycolax or other uh, market name, has been associated with any uh, neuropsychiatric event. Those are mostly anecdotal reports. There have been a lot of them, but, but there is every study that has been done looking at possible uh, side effects of uh, Miralax has never demonstrated long-term neuropsychiatric side effects. Now, this is a complicated topic, so allow me just to elaborate a little bit. It's been shown that one-third, up 30, 35% of patients presenting to a PGI clinic with constipation already screen positive for a variety of behavioral problems. So we already have a population that before treatment, it has already high prevalence of behavioral problems. Then there is the fact that constipation, at least in children, has a behavioral component and that most laxatives try to overcome this behavior by forcing the stools out in a child that often is trying to avoid the defecation. So it is certainly plausible uh, and actually something that we see quite often that using a laxative makes the child more irritable restless less able to concentrate and maybe even feisty or violent so there is that component um there is also the component that some of these medications are used for m- months or years and over years other things may happen people may develop seizure, <laughs> may develop other problems that are completely independent from the use of the laxatives um so what I tell the family is that, yes, currently, I feel comfortable using it. I've done this for 30 years. And that this, this uh, product has been studied extensively in the acute setting, in comparative studies, in high doses for cleanouts, And as far as I'm aware, from the scientific literature, there is no evidence that it causes any harm. Mm-hmm. That being said... I'm also one that believes that there is nothing special about this laxative. It's not the so-called miracle laxative. It's just as good as other stool softener, lactulose, sorbitol, magnesia, mineral oil, and so on. People have done the studies, and they've shown that what's differentiates Miralax from those is that the compliance is better because it doesn't taste as bad as some of the other laxatives. But by all means, if somebody prefers to use something else and is concerned about polyethylene glycol, I feel very comfortable using another stool softener. So why do you think all the
0: fuss is about Miralax and not those other medications?
2: Right. Uh, this is a medication that uh, came out in the late 80s and then have became really the number one yeah. uh, uh, product used. So I suspect if we had, As much lactulose usage or magnesium usage as we have had of uh, uh, Miralax, probably would have seen a variety of similar events associated with those. There is also the fact that in the last 20, 30 years, there has been much more attention to the development and the recognition of behavioral problems. Prevalence of autism has increased almost exponentially Mm -hmm. in the last 20 years. So, you know, this is not... This is also a... A association that doesn't necessarily mean causation. We have done the study. We and other people have done studies at least showing that in a small group of patients, blood level of the possible toxic product associated with the use of Miralax were just as high in the, in the serum as in patients who had never been given this product. So this is also a, a fairly ubiquitous product. It is in toothpaste, it is in many... Uh, 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 other products uh, that people eat every day. Uh, so, hard for me to imagine that this is the specific laxatives. That being said, we're open to data. If a study comes out showing us that this product is not as safe as other products, we'll use some other ones.
1: Can we move on and talk a little bit about stimulant mm-hmm. laxatives? When should we use them?
2: We should use them when a stool softener by itself And maybe the behavioral interventions and maybe the dietary advices that some people give are not sufficient to overcome the problem. There is no doubt in my mind, because we see them in clinic, that not every patient gets better with the stool softener. In in fact, in many patients, especially those with a dilated rectum and a lot of fecal incontinence, making the stools too liquid or too loose with uh, the stool softener make make things worse some of them may cause may have more gas and some of them may have more incontinence so i actually have a fairly low threshold for the use of a stimulant which in this case the two that i can think of that i use the most are Sena and bisacodo i'm not worried about dependence from those laxatives i'm not worried about damage to the colon i actually believe that by using them earlier we may actually shorten the duration of the problem, allow the colon to shrink back to a more normal size, have a more prompt, a complete evacuation, and actually benefit the child in the long term by being on laxatives for a shorter period of time, rather than reserving them for the very, very extreme cases. So, I use them. I use high doses. I use as high as they need them, and I'm not. I'm not worried about it. I think they're underutilized. In fact, the main reason. Sometimes that the patients are referred to a specialist is that the pediatrician or the family a practice physician has not used those stimulant laxatives, and that's usually the only thing I do. I add them to the treatment.
1: How long would you keep somebody on a stimulant laxative?
2: As long as needed. Somebody needs the rest of their life. Somebody is gonna that that beats having problems with constipation every day, and especially if incontinence is a problem every day i rather have somebody use a stimulant laxative than being con- than having fecal incontinence. Initially, you try to use them maybe as a rescue medication. If you don't have a bowel movement for 48 hours, you take a stimulant laxative. But there are some patients who need them, especially the patients who come and tell you that they never feel an urge. They never feel an urge. That means that they need the strongest signal to feel an urge. And stimulant laxatives often do provide that unmistakable urge that can make the child uh, uh, recognize the time to use the uh, toilet so maybe in the right patient there's nothing
0: necessarily wrong with even using a stimulant first before a still softener. i would
2: you know there are so many patients you know we are so many patients respond just to a softener i think yeah. we are a little bit biased in sense that in the sense that we are specialists we tend to see probably the most severe cases i suspect if you ask General pediatrician, they will tell you that many patients do quite well right. with a stool softener. That's fine. I think it's okay to try just making the stool soft and easy to pass. And then, you know, if that doesn't do it, uh, um, then you you add a, so- a stimulant. Yeah. So, in
0: terms of non pharmacologic treatment of constipation, what are some of the other things that you tell families?
2: Constipation in children has a behavioral component. Right. Children tend to withhold the stools because they're afraid it's going to hurt when they when they evacuate and um, and then you need they need to overcome this fear otherwise they will never be able uh, to have normal bowel function you know there are three things you cannot make children do eat sleep and poop and you know and the stooling is one of them right is is the third one and so unless the child wants to do it and 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 does it at the right time You're not going to be able to overcome this problem. So I, I actually like the idea of having a toilet routine, having them reacquainted with the use of the commode. Make sure that they sit comfortably on the toilet and they touch with their feet the floor, or or they can use a a step. They need to be able to push with their feet and with their abdominal muscles and relax their bottom. Sometimes it may take a while. They need to be incentivize, uh, but the behavioral component is very important very important yeah, we cannot make a child have a bowel movements if he, he or she does not want to have it um, so that that's that's key in fact in one of our, in our bowel management clinic here nationwide children's hospital we have a psychologist that uh, she's really an expert in retraining children to use uh, the toilets
0: do you usually still have them have a scheduled sit time or is it more if you feel the urge, go? What, right. what do you usually So say? the
2: idea is if you feel an urge, you go. Right. Um, you know, it's very hard to stool on, on demand. Right. If you ask anybody, of, you know, any of you to, to go out there right now and have a bowel movement, most of us will not be able to. Correct. It's really hard. <laughs> um, so you need to do it when your body gives you the, the, the signal. So I usually don't make it too uh, uh, um, rigid of a schedule. I think Once a day, usually after breakfast or after dinner, Mm -hmm. just to get retrained with the idea of it's okay to sit, doesn't hurt to sit on the toilet. And maybe the urge is going to kick in at that time because of the post, you know, the gastrocolony response, the postprandial urge that many people feel. I think sit for five, 10 minutes. I don't think it has to be an hour. It's not a punishment. You don't lock him in the restroom. You know, you just sit for 10, 15 minutes after one of the largest meals of the day and see if uh, you are successful in having a bowel Yeah. but I think more than that it becomes uh, probably too much of a punishment
1: yeah what about dietary interventions
2: well, yeah so diet is diet. another hot topic if you look at the guidelines uh, the aspirin and aspirin guidelines for the treatment of constipation they recommend pretty much a normal diet mm-hmm. normal amount of fiber normal amount of uh, fluids um I believe that there are good studies that show that a diet poor in fiber may actually predispose to constipation. But most of the studies that have looked at the use of fiber supplements to treat constipation have had mostly disappointing results. Uh, In several studies, fiber was just as good as placebo. So I don't make a big deal about changing the diet if somebody is currently being treated for constipation. In fact, I fear that an excessive amount of fiber may make the big, hard fecal stool even bigger and actually make it more difficult for the child to to, to maintain the rectum empty and and clean. So sometimes, you know, the family wants to have a little bit more of a a dietary intervention rather than a, a medication usage. But I try to educate them that uh, this is not one of those cases in which diet really plays a big role, at least in the treatment part.
0: I mean, there is some evidence that certain kinds of fruits or sugars may soften. I mean, do you ever say
2: anything about fruit intake? Yeah, dried prunes. There is a couple of studies in adults. Dried plums and and, and prunes are are, are maybe somewhat helpful. Kiwis. uh, There there was another study on kiwis that uh, seemed to indicate some benefit but you know, it's it's hard to give uh, this product every day to right. a child and you have to pick your bottles as well. You already try to give them the medication, you're already trying to change the behavior, you know, suddenly now you're gonna force them to eat things that they may not enjoy eating. To me of the different interventions that you can pick and choose this one in my mind is maybe as a lower priority and the same things for fluids right the other things that people keep saying is you have to drink a lot more if you drink a lot more you urinate a lot more nobody gets diarrhea from drinking water Uh, so I I tell them have a normal amount of fluids during the day. Now, if you are tube fed, mm-hmm. if you are a neurologically impaired child, and there are some other you know, uh, issues that are uh, related to other predisposing factors for constipation, yes, sometimes you need to make sure that they get appropriate amount of fluids. But yeah. increasing it over the normal amount doesn't benefit a constipated child.
0: Yeah. Sometimes a parent will say, oh, yeah, I give my teenage child coffee. And it helps them have a balm. And I think we've all, a, adults, sometimes yeah. will feel that way. Is so, that something that has, is, is that effect?
2: Has uh, it been demonstrated? I mean, is that something that you ever recommend? Interesting. Coffee and exercise are two a little bit under-studied uh, 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 factors in the treatment. And actually, in the, even in the predisposing pe- people to constipation. I suspect both things are helpful. Coffee is in general a, a stimulant, and uh, it stimulates uh, peristalsis and colonic motility. And uh, exercise does the same. There is mm-hmm. probably a reason why there are all those porta potties in, in the marathons and when people run the marathon. So exercise, yeah. I think both of them are probably true. I just I'm not aware of any really good studies that shows a great benefit of both. Yeah, that's why every Starbucks has a bathroom. Absolutely. All right. <laughs>
0: uh-huh.
2: all right.
1: That and maybe regulation. To stay
0: open. <laughs> that's true. Okay, that's fine. Yeah, seems reasonable. Cheese question later. Okay, cheese
1: question. <laughs> so I have toddlers. Uh-huh. They're both constipated. Sorry, girls. <laughs> they love cheese. Uh, is there any correlation there?
2: All right, that's another uh, anecdotal uh, piece of information that we hear when and then, whether or not cheese and milk, of all things, sometimes people believe causes constipation. I actually found a study that shows that lack of cheese causes constipation so it's the opposite there is a population-based studies that show that then there is the also the everyday observation that if cheese was that bad for you and causing so much constipation in wisconsin or in france which are very high you know consumers of cheese there would be a much more constipation than in other states of the united states or other countries in europe and that's not true so uh, i think that's another myth that there's uh, no scientific uh, backup. Oh, well, that's good. good
1: to know. You know, mac and cheese Eat is cheese favorite in our household. Yeah. So.
0: Eat cheese. Eat cheese. <laughs> of so like kiwis, cheese. Coffee. Dry coffee yeah, and coffee. Exercise. Yeah. Exercise. <laughs>
1: so what advice do you have for our fellows, maybe residents considering gastroenterology? Uh, what advice do you have for them?
2: Just... You know, I mean, this is a great specialty. But in terms of developing a niche, in terms of developing an area of expertise, find out what's available in the place where you are training. If you have a passion for bile salts, don't come to a place where they don't have uh, a liver program, right? If you have uh, if you are enthusiastic about uh, cystic fibrosis, go to a place where there is a big CF center. If you wanna, you know, if you like IBD, then then, then probably any center will do it. Try to to discover the strength. Of your institution or the place where you are, try to fill a niche. You know, you know. But sometimes it could be eosinophilic esophagitis. Go work with the allergists. Go work with immunologists, and then you know, see what your institution needs if you want to stay there. And then there is nothing wrong in a, in a eventually changing field. If you do something, don't 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 overwork it. Don't over uh, agonize about uh, uh, your field. Tried. We have had plenty of very successful physicians in our practice. They were in the lab for a few years and then became spectacular clinicians. Uh, you know, and they were equally successful as clinicians. So there is always the opportunity for two, three switches in your career, and there is nothing wrong with that. Nobody's going to look down at that. That's part for the course. So, so you don't have to have it figured out by the time you are uh, <laughs> done with your fellowship. Things can now, change. Things can change.
1: That's good to know. Yeah. So, Dr. Carlo Di Lorenzo, yeah. thank you so much for being with us on our first episode of Naspigan Bowel Sounds, yep. and first of many, we hope. Do you have any last parting words for everyone?
2: No, I'm a little bit <laughs> concerned about uh, <laughs> who's going to listen to this. I think I was uh, a little bit uh, speaking off the cuff. Uh, I, I, you know, yep. I hope people appreciate that some of the things I said are just my opinion and that, uh, you know, there is not a lot of science behind it, but I've been doing this for 30 years now. This is my 30 years of being a pediatric gastroenterologist. So Congrats. I kind of learned something by doing it. And I just wanted to share with the listener some of the tricks of the trade.
1: Thanks for sitting in listening with us on our first of hopefully many episodes of Bowel Sounds.
2: I just want to remind you guys
0: to follow NASPGEN on social media. So it's at NASPGEN on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Uh, where you guys can find more information about upcoming episodes of Bowel Sounds.
1: And don't forget, the discussion, views, and recommendations in the podcast are the sole responsibility of the host and the guest and are subject to change over time with advances in the field.
0: Hope to see us in Chicago for the NASPGN Annual Meeting. Bye.